Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the uh, second service. What an incredible God story. Amen. I love hearing God change people's lives. And, you know, Clay's story is so powerful. They've been a part of our church here for a few years now. And and I love just what God did in his life, that God restored him. God rebuilt the walls in his life that were broken down. And now Clay is about rebuilding walls in other people's lives. That's, that's a great Nehemiah story as we're in this, in this second chapter of Nehemiah. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn there with me. And we will continue uh, in this incredible story of Nehemiah. I love part of Clay's story that he told me about. One of the greatest parts that you didn't get to see in the video was how he came to find out about our church. And... And he was working out up at uh, one of the local gyms, and uh, one of you invited him to come. You had built a relationship with him and, and, uh, and started talking to him, and, he, and he, had, he had never been to church, never been to church anywhere, completely unchurched. And he decided and felt like this was maybe where he was supposed to go, and he came, and as you heard, he said he was just in tears whenever he first came, because God had been drawing his heart. God had been preparing him. God was doing something, and we got to baptize Clay and his wife, Michelle, in Eagle Mountain Lake a few years ago, and uh, that was at one of our lake services there, and then also just this last year, Clay got to baptize his son, Michael, and so don't you just love it when God changes people's lives, amen? That is what it is all about, and we've been talking about restoring broken walls and rebuilding the fallen walls in our lives, and Clay's story is a Nehemiah story. We've been in this uh, book of Nehemiah. If you haven't been here for a while or maybe you're new, we're in the middle of this story that's found in the Old Testament. If you'll go ahead and turn in your Bibles there, we're going to be in chapter 2, picking up where we left off. And it's a story about a man named Nehemiah who went from being a cupbearer to the king of Persia to being a wall builder back in his hometown of Jerusalem. And just to catch you up to speed, again, if you haven't been here or maybe you don't know the context of this story, the man who's writing this story, his name is Nehemiah. The man who's telling the story is Nehemiah. And he was a Jewish man who worshipped the one true God, Jehovah. Now, he did not grow up in Jerusalem. He grew up in, uh, in, in Persia. At one time, it was, was where Babylon and the Babylonian Empire uh, had, had come about 140 years prior to this. And in 586 B.C., they laid siege to Jerusalem. They were the world power at the time. They ransacked and just completely sacked the city. They destroyed the city. They, they broke the walls down. Nebuchadnezzar was the king at that time, and he had his soldiers personally destroy the walls of the city. The protective walls of the city were incredibly important to any, uh, any country, any city. It was, in fact, in many cases, more important than even an army because it protected people. And, and these walls, he had them destroy the walls, and they destroyed the temple of God that was built by Solomon, this glorious temple. At one time, as you know, Israel was this great nation that God had delivered out of slavery and bondage in Egypt, and God had made all of these promises to them and, and, and had promised to use them in all of these incredible ways. But unfortunately, in many cases, the, the people of Israel turned their backs on God and began to enter into idolatry. And God would send prophet after prophet going to them and beseeching them to repent and to return to him. And he would warn them that if they did not, that he would bring discipline upon his beloved people. And, and that ends up, as you know, how the story goes, that God even uses Babylon and even uses Persia to bring this discipline upon his beloved people of Israel. And this once great nation, this, 
great nation that once reflected the glory and the power of God to all the other surrounding nations. They were the light in the world at one particular time, and now they had become just like everyone else. And many thought that God had abandoned them. They, they not only had broken down walls and broken down facilities and broken down buildings, but I think more than anything, this is a story of broken down people. They were broken down and now they were in disgrace. And, and it was 140 years later that a man named Nehemiah would be confronted with a stark reality that the place where the glory of God once shone so brightly amongst his people was no longer there. So it's a story of rebuilding walls, but it's a story of rebuilding people for the glory of God and for God's glory to be revealed again amongst his people. And God has been challenging us as a church. He's been challenging me personally as just a person and as well as a a father and a husband and a pastor. He's been challenging us to open our eyes. Where are the broken down walls in my own life? Where are the broken down walls in our family, in our church? Are there broken down walls in our community, in our world? Where are the needs, needs that cause us to go beyond our comfort zones and cause us to get outside of that comfortable place, maybe outside of our gated communities and and actually begin to engage and see the world the way that it really is. And that is there's a hopelessness without the good news of Jesus Christ. Just like Clay was talking about, I love the transparency of Trey's story, or Clay's story. I love the transparency of his story, and and as he shares uh, what what God began to do in his life. And where we left off last week, if you'll recall, um, after months in prayer about his vision, as God confronts Nehemiah with, with some of his fellow countrymen who come to him, and he asks a question that would forever change his life, he said, brothers, how are things back home? How are things back home? And he had been living in the palace. He was the cupbearer to the king. And you understood as we've been talking about that the cupbearer was an an important position to the king. It wasn't only just tasting wine, but it it was almost like an advisor to the king. He was someone that was close to the king and had the ear of the king. And and Persia now was the world power as they had overthrown Babylon. And now Artaxerxes was on the throne and and, and God had sovereignly positioned uh, Nehemiah as well as others to be in the king's ear about this restoration of Jerusalem where one day Jesus would walk on those very same streets. See, why is it so important that, that Jerusalem be restored? And again, it's just part of all of the, the history and prophecy coming all together. And so he's, he's gone to the king. He has prayed over it for months now, and it's just been taking up this residency within his heart. It's been percolating within him, and he's seeking God as he's confronted with the truth. Now, God, what do you want me to do about this? I've heard about it. I know about it. I've grown comfortable where I am in the palace. And God, I sense that you're leading me to action. What do you want me to do? So he's going to go boldly before the king and at just the right time. You know, as we read last week, he goes and he seeks the permission of the king. He is blessed by the protection of the king as God's hand is upon him. The king and the closeness that he has in proximity to the king, he's not only going to ask for protection, he's going to ask the king to, to pay for it. 
And he's boldly going to ask him to make the provision. And the, and, he's, and, and the scripture says, the gracious hand of God was upon me. So we know this, that he leaves this town of Susa, which was the home, the winter home, and the winter palace for King Artaxerxes. It's about 850 miles away from Jerusalem. He's given permission, he's given protection, and now he's been given provision to be able to go and to begin this process of rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem, and that's where we pick up. He's been given this authority, but you know as he traveled through the desert, it must have taken him, you know, maybe a few months to get there. So God was cultivating some patience in Nehemiah's life, not only through that time of prayer leading up to him seeking permission from the king, but while he was traveling, don't you know he must have had thoughts going through his mind like, what's it going to be like when I really get there? I've never seen it for myself. What are the people going to be like? I know God's leading me to do this great thing, but there are others that have gone before me and attempted this, and they failed. Why would I be any different? Why might it work this time? Maybe he had that, heard that little whisper that many of us hear in our ears, God could never use somebody like you. God doesn't want to use you. God can never use you. Others have tried. They failed. Maybe he started thinking, when I get there and I start talking to the people, they're going to view me as an outsider. Remember, he'd never lived there. He'd never even, likely never even seen it. Are they going to view him as a meddler, as kind of a holier than thou? He knew that there had been these that had gone before, and yet they failed, and he's wondering, am I really the right person for this job? You know, why would I be any different? How does one go from being a cupbearer to a wall builder? How does God take us through that kind of process? What happens there uh, to where he would end up being a a leader of multitudes? And listen, if you're a leader of any kind and you lead in any capacity whatsoever, this is a great story for you, this this story of Nehemiah. Maybe you're a business owner and you're leading people in your business. Maybe you're a life group leader and you're leading people in Bible study. Maybe, I don't know, maybe you're a teacher or a coach or maybe you pastor somewhere or someone. Maybe you're a shift leader or a manager or, you know, you lead people on a construction crew. There are all kinds of leaders, and if you're a leader, this is for you. How many of you are parents? Would you raise your hands, raise them up high? Parents, okay? Let me tell you something. You're a leader. You're leading little people, right? You're leading people that are watching you. You have influence. God has given you a place of influence. And, and you know, the, and many times probably when we are led to do something, we have these doubts and these thoughts of, man, this really is, seems like an impossible task. I don't know how I'm ever going to do this. Well, I want you to see in this story what happens, that God didn't just give us this story for history's sake. Now, it's going to be very descriptive, okay? It's not just there for us just to read his history just so we can say we know a little bit more just about the history of Israel. God has given us this great story because he wants us to see that he's still the same God today that he was back in Nehemiah's time, and God uses people like Nehemiah. God wants to use you. God uses people like clay that we saw in the video. We're shown in the book how God responds and through this history to people when they humble themselves before their almighty God and they say, here I am, God, use me. I don't know how you're going to do it, but God, I make myself available. So look, what do we find in chapter 2? Let's pick up in verse 11. Chapter 2, verse 11. So here's what he says. Remember, he's telling it kind of firsthand here. He says, so I arrived in Jerusalem. This is Nehemiah. I arrived in Jerusalem. So it's been a big, long journey. Now, notice what it says next. Three days later. Now, this is great, okay? This is a great principle right here because he needed some rest. 
This had been a long trip. He needed fresh eyes to be able to see what he was about to see, so um, this is a good reason to go take a nap today, okay? All right? Take a good nap. Get some rest so you have fresh eyes to see the things that God wants you to do. And now it says, three days later, I slipped out during the night, taking only a few others with me. I had not told anyone about the plans that God had put in my heart for Jerusalem. We took no pack animals with us except the donkey that I was riding. Okay, so this is in the middle of the night. After dark, I went out through the valley gate, past the jackal's well, and over to the dung gate to inspect the broken walls and the burned gates. These gates that are mentioned in the city where there were walls. There'd be all kinds of different gates that had different functions where people would come in and out for different reasons. And look at verse 13, or actually verse 15. So though it was still dark, I went up the the Kidron Valley instead. And I want you to notice this this word right here, and I want you to say it with me. And what was he doing as he was going about? What was he doing? Inspecting. I was inspecting the wall before I turned back, and I entered again at the valley gate. We see a principle at work that's absolutely necessary for God to begin to do a work through us as a person and through a leader. When God begins to give us this calling that we have for something in our life, this, this Nehemiah principle we see first, if you're taking some notes, we see the principle of inspection. Again, if you're a leader, this is something good. And this is good for all of us to inspect things that are happening around us, to open our eyes. So after resting for a few days, which again, it's just a great thing to do, he needed fresh eyes. He needed to gather himself. He needed most likely to spend some time sleeping, some time to gather himself in prayer. And and this is what he's doing after this time of rest. He decided that he needed to see the devastation firsthand with his own eyes. Now this is really important because Nehemiah had only been hearing about the destruction. Others had just kind of told him about it. Others had mentioned it to him before. He'd heard about it, but he had never seen it with his own eyes. And, and I really believe that this was a time where he saw the devastation with his own eyes, and God really began to galvanize this vision in his heart even further. And now he realizes that this destruction is real. There's hopelessness in my hometown here where my ancestors were raised. There's hopelessness here. It's like when somebody goes on a mission trip. How many of you have ever been on a mission trip? Would you raise your hands? Okay, many of you have been. And many of you maybe have, you haven't had a chance to go on a trip, but maybe you've served in a ministry somewhere in some kind of way. And, and you know, there's no doubt that God can use the testimony of others to tell stories. We saw that again through the video. Many of you have told your stories, and there's power in that. But I want you to know something. There's also incredible, intense power whenever you see it and experience it firsthand yourself, Right? And it's not just somebody telling you about brokenness. It's actually you experiencing that and seeing that yourself and you inspecting that firsthand. And I remember uh, a few years back whenever our, our church was engaged in the country of Vietnam and we were doing work there. And, uh, and I'd been on several mission trips before, but I'd never been to Southeast Asia there. And, and I remember we were meeting with some different pastors at the time that were there in Vietnam. And uh, we were there on a vision trip. Literally, we were, we were there to kind of scope out and see where God was calling us to get engaged in work in that country. 
And I had met a young pastor. He was in his early 20s there. He was a new Christian. And, and now he's just trying to share the gospel with other people. And I remember going to his, his house church. And it was just a little hut. And they had a dirt floor. And he's running multiple services. And he's not having consultants telling him how to do this. He's just trying to get as many people the message, the message of Jesus Christ, the gospel message to as many people as he possibly could. And, man, they were running several hundred people in and out of that little little hut with uh, with dirt floors. I mean, it was an incredible thing under threat of persecution because, you know, they couldn't openly do that. But it was just powerful meeting that and experiencing that for myself, seeing it for myself. And I remember while I was there um, and I was on this trip, I met a, a, a lady who was a headmaster at a school. And I believe we have a picture there. OK, I don't know who that who that fat guy is with her there. But 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 anyhow, I met this lady and uh, she was the headmaster of a school. That, there was just incredible poverty in this school. And I just remember as I was kind of there scoping things out, and I was seeing things for myself, and I, I noticed as a person who wears glasses, I just started looking around, and it dawned on me, nobody here has glasses. Nobody's wearing glasses. And so I was talking to her through a translator, and I said, well, do, you, do you people just have great eyesight? What's going on? And she just said, she told me, she said, we're very, very poor here, as you can tell, and there's not any doctors here for that. And even if we had doctors here to do that, nobody has the money for glasses. And I was like, well, 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 I happen to know several optometrists right here in our church. We have the Astons and the Russos and others among us, all right? And I'm like, I know that God, and see, that's what God wants to do is he wants to cross you with somebody in the world and, and connect people with their giftedness and their talents. And I came back from that trip, and I, and I shared with William, Dr. Aston, over on Boat Club Road, throwing you a plug, William. There you go, all right? And, and I shared with him, I shared with him what, what God was doing there and what I saw and just said, hey, what do you think about doing this? And he shares that vision with some of his colleagues and they donate glasses and William goes with me and w Richard Weinstein was on that trip and we went back there and William ends up just seeing, I think, over 300 people in that school on that day, fitting people with glasses, using his talents, using his skills, the things that he's passionate for. He fitted me while I was over there too. I even got some new glasses while I was there. And uh, I mean, it was just a great, great trip while we were there. But you know, it was just experiencing it. And you know, William had heard about it from me, but now Vietnam and those people there will ever have a, forever have a special place in his heart. I think about whenever Randy and I last year, about a year ago, went to Montreal as we're engaging that people group, the Quebecois people group, and we were there again on a vision, a vision trip. How are we going to get involved and what's God doing here? And it's a beautiful city there, but there's a lot of desperation and brokenness and hopelessness. The suicide rate is astronomical. I mean, there's depression everywhere there, and we have people that are planning churches, and how are we getting involved you know, it's one thing for me to hear about that from Chad Vandiver, and then when I went and I experienced it for myself, it galvanized the vision. When I inspected it for myself, 
when I experienced it for myself, and I think of many of you who have been to Honduras, and you've heard about what happened in Honduras, and, and some of you went, and now it's a forever special place in your heart because you experienced it. You saw the brokenness. You saw the thirsty people as we were able, uh, many of you were able to do a, a water well there and a school and other things, and some of you have been to, to Mexico, and others of you have been other places, and, and, you know, and some of you are involved in Community Link and mentoring students across the street here at Saginaw Elementary and using your gifts for some children in our community that are less fortunate. And you're involved in that. And, you know, nothing changes lives more than whenever God's people get involved. They roll up their sleeves and they see it for themselves and they use their gifts and their talents to make a difference in the world, not just hearing about it. Getting involved, seeing it for themselves. And this is what Nehemiah did. He inspected the brokenness for himself. The brokenness for himself. And God does something to our hearts whenever we see it for ourselves and we experience this. And, you know, and you look at you look at Clay's story, you may be thinking, well, I don't have the money to go on a trip overseas or to go somewhere else. Or I can't get off from work or I don't have the time to do this. Here's what I want us to be sure that we are understanding is that it's not all about mission trips, okay? It's not about a destination point. You, if you are a Christ follower, are on mission with God every single day, everywhere you go, amen? It's not about a one-time event. What it's about is opening your eyes and inspecting the world around you. I've been saying this week after week is is that whatever it is that you do as far as making your living, that is not your identity. Where you work, where you go to school, the places that you're involved there, the place that you live, that God has sovereignly placed you there. Listen, that is where God wants your mission field to be. You may have an opportunity to go on a trip, but God wants you on mission with him every single day, just like in Clay's story. I love that he just said, man, I just decided to just start following and open my eyes, and God burdened me with these certain things in my life, and, and I realized that, that I could make a difference, and, and you know, Clay told me, he said, I didn't know what to do. He said, I get on Facebook a lot, and I, a lot, and I just started kind of putting it out there that I was wanting to do something over in southeast Fort Worth where I grew up, and I had a few other other people that I didn't know that found that and we connected and we've been networking and now we've we've gotten this ministry up and started but here's what I want to say your ministry doesn't even need to have a name you have a name and his name is Jesus and that is your identity and you are on mission with God you don't have to have bylaws a constitution or any of those things to be a part of a ministry you are a minister for Jesus Christ wherever you are amen that's what God has called you to do You've got to inspect. You've got to inspect the broken down walls where you work. You've got to inspect it where where you go to school. You've got to inspect it in your own life. So Nehemiah, I love this story. It's a dramatic scene. He arises in the middle of the night. Perhaps he couldn't sleep, and he's like, I've got to just go. I've got to go check this out. And he wanted to see and experience it for himself. So he has the cover of night. He goes on this this moonlight-driven recon mission, all right? And he's gathering intel, and he's fully aware. He's not only just, you know, savvy of what God is doing, he's also fully aware of how people function. And he realizes that he's got to get people on board with him. So, so he's not naive about just telling everybody everything too prematurely. 
He's letting the, the vision continue to, get, to grow in his heart and the plan that God has given him. And, and so he goes out and he experiences it for himself. And I, I really believe that during this time, just prior to launching and casting this great vision, that Nehemiah was not only gathering intel on the condition, the physical condition of the walls, I really believe that he was studying the people that were there. That he was trying to figure out what was going on in their hearts and in their lives. He's inspecting the, the, the brokenness around him. He's waiting for God's perfect timing. What can we learn from this? There's a great principle that we see is that honest inspection is essential to affect lasting difference and change around us. Let me elaborate on this for a moment. Honestly inspecting. When we get honest about brokenness in our own lives, when we own it. When we acknowledge that there is brokenness within us, when there are walls that are down around us, the walls that we need to be concerned about aren't necessarily physical walls, right? Okay, we have walls that are in place physically, but the walls that we're talking about in our lives are spiritual walls and emotional walls and maybe walls that are, are relational walls that come down. And, and you know, and, and, and that's not our concern is the physical stuff so much. It's this, is that there's brokenness in our own lives. And, and for anything positive to ever begin to happen, we have to get honest about it. We have to acknowledge it. And that's whenever healing begins to happen it's just a fact is to be a person who's continuing to grow, to be a church that continues to grow, uh, to, to be able to be a person growing in any kind of way. There has to be honest assessment. There has to be honest evaluation. It's getting to this place where I'm not living in denial any longer about these broken down walls in my life. You know what? It's really easy to, easy to do. It's easy to get used to the way things are. And I really think that the people of Jerusalem there who had been living there in the city amongst the ruins, they had gotten used to the rubble. They'd gotten used to the brokenness. And rather than beginning to do something about it, they were just walking right by it because they had grown complacent about the brokenness. And before any change will happen, there has to be assessment. There has to be honesty. There has to be someone getting real and saying this is the real condition and it's not good. Something needs to change. And if you get real about the walls in your life, let me ask you this. What do you really see? If you get real about the walls that maybe have come down in, in, in your marriage, what do you really see there whenever you get honest? What about your parenting? What about your, your physical health or the way that you care for yourself? And, you know, I made a joke about my fat self back there, but that was a wall in my life that was down physically, and, and I had gotten used to it. And I just was like, I can never change. This will never happen. And what do you see whenever there's areas of brokenness in your life? Where are there weaknesses? And you know what I've really discovered? And this is just, I've discovered this in my own life. I know this to be true, is that when you get honest about where there is brokenness in your life and you actually acknowledge it, you know why many of us never want to do that? Is because when we finally do, it really hurts. Right? When we finally admit that I've got a problem in this area or something's not right in this area in my life, when I finally acknowledge it, that this is the real condition, it really, it really hurts. That's why a lot of times we just don't want to even deal with it. 
That's why a lot of times we'd rather talk about everybody else's jacked up walls, right? Because <laughs> it doesn't hurt as much to talk about others' walls that are down. But when you start talking about our walls, it hurts. Many of us think, I could never change. Many of us think nothing could ever happen here. Why do we have the story of Nehemiah? It's to show us that God is all about restoring and rebuilding things that seem impossible to restore. It's a story of hope. And this is why the gospel message of Jesus is so powerful. If all we did today was just say, you know, inspect your broken down walls and feel really bad about yourself, amen, and there you go, on your way out, that wouldn't be a very great message, okay? The message is a message of hope and that the gospel message of Jesus changes and covers us by the blood of Jesus. It can change our lives, amen? Uh, like the choir was singing, the blood of Jesus, that's what brings forgiveness and change and redemption in our life. It's the grace of Jesus Christ that abounds greatest where we are weakest. Amen? That's, that's what this is all about. This is what the gospel is about. So Nehemiah inspected the real conditions. He checked it out for himself. And, and he wanted to see it for himself, not just to be critical, not just to only be critical, but he wanted to, to begin to provide a solution for what needs to happen. So here's what we're going to see that God begins to do in his heart. There's another principle at work here. This is principle of inspiration. There's a principle of inspiration. After he goes through this inspection, he, he's inspired by God to do something. And, and when we get honest about ourselves or about brokenness or broken down walls, we'll be tempted to stay in a place of grief and mourning for some time. And there's nothing wrong with grieving. There's nothing wrong with mourning. But there is also time, a time for us to begin to allow God to bring healing and inspire us to do something with that pain in our lives. And so we need this hope and this faith in our God to be a catalyst for change. And God begins to inspire Nehemiah. He begins to inspire his heart further. He galvanizes the mission even further. He's ready to launch out even further. And he's been praying about it. And now he's going to be going before the people, sharing his heart with people about the, about the broken down walls. He's going to call leaders together. He's calling people together. And he's at this, this incredibly critical moment of casting the vision for other people and many of them who have no idea who he is. I was thinking about this while I was reading it this week. What must that look like, okay? I kind of imagine him standing on top of one of the piles of rubble, okay? If I was going to talk about broken down walls, I'd stand on the broken down walls. I'd stand out there and I'd gather people around me. And I'm thinking he maybe, and I don't know this for sure, but, but in my imagination, he's standing there and the time is right in his heart. And he's ready to share the vision now. And people are probably whispering to one another, who is this guy? I mean, who does this guy think he is? And, and one says to someone else, well, he's a cupbearer to Artaxerxes. Oh, well, the cupbearer. Okay, he's been drinking the good wine while we're drinking wine out of a box, right? Okay, that's probably what he's saying. And I just imagine this buzz among the people, and I don't know if it's from the wine from the box. I don't know, okay? But I imagine that there's just this curiosity about who he is. And notice he's not going to say this. He's not going to get up on the walls and just say, man. Yeah, I got some messed up walls. I'm just saying, holla, I'm going back to, you know, where I need to, uh, back to the place, you know, back at the palace there. Man, good luck with all that. You know, you don't see that, all right? Now, and so we see in verse 16, it says this, the city officials 
did not know what I had been out there or that I had been out there or what I was doing. For I had not yet said anything to anyone about my plans. I had not yet spoken to the Jewish leaders, the priests, the nobles, the officials, or anyone else in the administration. He hadn't said anything yet, okay? He's been really just keeping this between him and the Lord. But now I said to them, now it's time to cast the vision. You know very well what trouble, now what is the next word? We are in. Notice he didn't say, you know very well the trouble that you are in. Man, y'all are messed up. I'd hate to live here. No, look at what he says. He takes ownership in this. You know very well what trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins. And its gates have been destroyed by fire. Now read the next part with me out loud. Help me out, church. Let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and end this what? Disgrace. What was the disgrace? Remember the glory of God once was in this place. It was so great. And their story was so powerful. They were a light to the nations. And now all the nations were laughing at them and laughing at their God. Oh, your God's the one that brought you out of Egypt. Where's your God now? He's saying, guys, people are making fun of us. They're mocking our God. They're saying that God has abandoned us. We know God has promised us that we are his people. This has to stop today. God's glory among us is in disgrace. Let's not forget who we really are. We're the people of God. We have an identity in in God, in Jehovah himself. Our God is the God who delivered us out of Egypt. Our God is the God who parted the Red Sea. God is is wanting and willing to bring about change, but God has been waiting on us. That's what I see him saying. That's what I'd say. Uh, This weekend, I was flipping through the channels, and uh, whenever I do that, and I come across this one particular movie, you know, it's just, I can't, I'm mesmerized by this movie. It's Braveheart, all right? And all the men said, right, okay? When Braveheart's on, I'm just, I'm locked in, you know, and I've seen it so many times, and, you know, I can't sit and watch the whole thing because it's like four hours long, right? So I just catch snippets of it, and my family, if they know that I have, and and it's on, they're like, oh, no, and they're out of there, you know, because I'm watching, and I start getting fired up, okay, because I'm inspired by the leadership whenever I watch that show, and the sacrifice, and the courage, and, and, you know, and and I just kind of get fired up. I get a little bit intense, and my dog's They kind of tuck their tail between their legs, and they even leave the room, okay? Because I get intense as I start watching this. And and the one scene that I was was watching this weekend, that that as I was watching this, it just kind of fired me up. And I thought, man, this is a Nehemiah story. He is there, and he's leading them, and and they're, they're at this great valley. And on one side are all the Scottish soldiers who are about to rise up and fight for their freedom. And on the other side, there's this oppression with the, the British Empire there. And they're trying to suppress them, and they've been oppressing them for hundreds of years. And William Wallace goes out, and he's leading people into this great rebellion against them. And, and he's like, are you willing to, to fight for your freedom? All right? And that's what he's says like that and they're like we don't want to fight because they're terrified they look out they've gotten used to the way things are right 
And he's out there on his horse, and he's, he's trying to inspire them riding back and forth. And he's like, will you fight? And they're like, fight against that? No way. I mean, we're going to get whipped. We want to live is what they said. And he says, I fight and you may die, right? Fight and you may die. Run and you'll live. At least a while and dying in your beds. And man, I had to write it down. Dying in your beds many years from now. Would you be willing to trade all the days from this day to that for one chance? Just one chance to come back here and tell your enemies that they may take our lives, but they'll never take our what? Freedom, right? Man, and then it's like, and again, my dogs, they scatter. Because I'm like, yeah! I mean, that is just an awesome scene. What is that? It's inspiration. It's passion. It's just this passion after inspecting brokenness. And Nehemiah doesn't just come to them and say, here's the problem and here's what you're doing wrong. No, he comes alongside them and he leads them. He inspires them. He comes alongside them and he doesn't say, look at the trouble that you're in. Y'all are messed up. You're, you, you know, and, and, and no, he says, look at the trouble that we're in together. This is us. We are one. This is, he takes ownership in this. Look at the problems that we have. And Nehemiah points them to how God is in this. He begins to share with them how the hand of God was upon him. He's inspiring them, inspiring, he's inspired and he's inspiring them. And this is what it says in verse 18. Then I told them about how the gracious hand of God had been on me. And about my conversation with the king, remember from what we looked at last week, and now the king's favor is upon him, but the king of kings' favor is upon him here, and that's what really matters. And they replied at once, yes, say it with me, church, what do they say? Let's rebuild the wall. So they began the good work. They started, but it takes inspection. And inspiration. It takes getting real. And what this tells us is that we need godly leaders. We need people who have influence to lead, to have courage, to step out, to be inspired, to join in the good work that God is calling them to do. Not just to stay comfortable while the ruins are all around us, but to step up and lead. It speaks to me as a husband and a father. To lead. We've entered into a new era in my home as of today. My, the baby of, of our family, Trinity, turns 13 today. Luke's 18. I have two teenagers in the house. Wow. You know what they need? They need a leader. Dads, our families need leaders. Single parents, our, our kids need leaders. Moms, our kids need leaders, and I just think about godly leadership as what God has called us to do. Again, sorry for the Braveheart moments, but again, it's just there's so many great examples in this movie. I think about whenever William Wallace is, is there, and he's talking to one of the nobles. His name's Robert the Bruce, and he is the rightful heir to the throne. He is the one who should be leading this uprising And he tells them this, you are the rightful leader. You have the identity. And he tells this man this. He says, if you will just lead them, they'll follow you. 
And he tells him this, if you just lead us, I will follow you. They need leaders. Question, let me ask you this. You have influence with somebody in your life. Again, many of you raised your hands, your parents, many of you are leaders in the community, many of you are leaders in businesses and schools. Question, are you using your influence to lead others closer to the things of God or further away from the things of God? God has given you leadership for a reason. Are you being a good steward of the influence that God has given you? You know what? God wants to use firemen, teachers, doctors, construction workers, coaches, accountants, lawyers, business people, students, architects, stay-at-home moms. Sorry if I left you off the list. He wants to use you too. God uses all kinds of people. He wants to use you on your mission field where you are. Finally, what we see is this principle next. It's a principle called mobilization, where he's going to share this vision. He inspects it. He's inspired, and now he's going to mobilize people to join him in this vision. Remember, he was a cupbearer. He had probably never built anything in his life, and now God has given him this task of building a wall around a city. Nehemiah is not meant to do that by himself. He's meant to share that vision and mobilize people who are gifted in all kinds of ways. God wanted to use him as a catalyst for mobilizing people, getting people involved. God wants to use leaders to mobilize others in getting in on what God is already doing. To use their gifts, to use their skills, to use the things that God has blessed them with and be mobilized for a mission. Here's what that means. If you're taking notes, write this down, is that we each need to take our place in the work that God is doing. The broken walls are all around us. And so the question for us to consider is, what is my part in restoring the walls that are right in front of my face? Am I doing my part in rebuilding walls for the glory of God? I'm not going to read chapter 3 for you today, and you'll be glad because there are a lot of names in that, in that chapter that I can't pronounce, okay? You might enjoy actually seeing me try to pronounce them. But read chapter 3, and you know what you're going to find? You're going to find incredible amounts of diversity. You're going to find as they are building these different, they, they divide the work, they, they get involved, they, they, they rebuild the sheep gate. The priest take the sheep gate. Do you know why they're rebuilding the sheep gate, Okay. Um, it's, it's to, that's what they did first because that's where the sheep would then come into the temple where they would have the sacrifices. They wanted to get first things first right with God. And then they start building all these different gates and they, they're, they're building. And then he uses goldsmiths and perfume makers. What are perfume makers? It's recorded like that. Are being used. They're getting involved. Merchants, civic leaders, men, women, families, a father with his daughters. I mean, it's one thing right after another. It records all of the diversity for a reason. He wants to show us something. What? We are better together. We are better when we pitch in together, when we do our part. They are rebuilding the walls, the sheep gate, the fish gate, the horse gate. I mean, it's all there. The water gate, it was the scandalous part of the wall, okay? The the fountain gate, 
the dung gate. I wondered who got that job, right? Who got the dung gate? I wondered if it was like in our staff meeting, if that person's not there, we assign it to them. And then they're like, what did I get? What? You know? And he's like, golly, maybe it was the perfume maker that got the dung gate. I don't know. Okay? But they got him involved. There's three words that you'll see over and over again in chapter 3. This is all we're going to read in chapter 3. Is these words right here. And next to him. Next to him. Next to him. And next to them. Over and over and over again. Why is it like that? He's saying they were partnering together. We don't all need to be the same. But we do all need to be engaged. God wants us all doing our part in rebuilding his walls around our city. What part of the fallen wall are you rebuilding? If they were recording today all the many different participants in rebuilding the walls, what would be your part that would be listed? Is your rebuilding in your home and rebuilding in our community and in our church as you're serving and getting involved. How do you rebuild falling walls? Fallen walls, it's you living your life as a disciple of Jesus, a follower of Jesus, wherever it is that you are currently planted, you know, and then you just living that faith out where you are and being hope and light and salt in a broken world. I want to invite you now just to just to bow your heads with me as we just have a time to respond to what we've heard from God's word. Nehemiah could have never rebuilt that wall by himself. It took everybody. God is doing something great among us. And when you are building your part of the wall, I want you to know something. It matters. What you're doing for God matters. Don't quit. Don't give up. Our response time today is going to be an opportunity for you just to respond to what you've heard from God's word personally. I want to invite you to worship with me. As we close our service, we'll continue just to worship in song. And you can make those songs your prayer back to God. Maybe some of you, you might feel led just to come and pray down here at the front as just an altar here. Some of you, you may just want to kneel down where you are or remain seated where you are. But will you offer yourself up to God? Say, God, I just want to be used by you. I want to make a difference. Here I am, Lord. Send me. Use me.